At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. My name's Stuart Wright, and we're continuing the Fright Fest preview series that I like to do each August. And today's guests are Andre Gower and Henry Darrow McComas. Hello, guys. Greetings. How are you? I'm good. L- London's just cooled down tremendously in the last two days. Well, that is perfect because L.A. has not cooled down yet and we'll be coming there shortly. So it'll be a good little reprieve. <laughs> it'll be nice. Yeah, we've dropped we've dropped from 31 degrees to uh, 19 in two days. Oh, wow. That's a big drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, funny. yeah. We're still up here in the 90s and hundreds. So it's jeez, <laughs> jeez. Now, obviously, the listener, we've not come to talk to these guys about the weather between Pacific the Pacific Coast and Britain. We've come to talk about Wolfman's Got Nards, the documentary that's showing at Frightfest. Does one of you guys want to give us a brief synopsis as to what that is about? Uh, Wolfman's Got Nards is a documentary that tells the story of a relationship between a movie and its dedicated audience over the span of 30 years. That movie would be Fred Decker, Shane Black's classic the Monster Squad. Indeed, it is. And as I was, uh, as I was, ta- as I was talking to the guys before we started, my confession is, I've not seen the Monster Squad, but I think it's 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 testimony to the documentary that um, even without that, that, even with that missing element, at, by the end of the documentary, I felt from all the people that spoke, the fans, the filmmakers, the the critics, the academics, the people that were in it, the people that made it. Um, was that I felt like I missed out on something pretty special. Well, um, you absolutely did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's, uh, I, you know, like we were saying before, I think that's uh, okay to feel because um, that's sort of what the documentary, you know, kind of shines a light on. And it shines a light a little bit of the fact that, uh, you know, the Monster Squad had this impact on people back in 87 and 88 when they found it on HBO and at their local video stores. 
and over the subsequent years when their friends passed it down or their older brothers passed it down or sisters or, you know, parents. And that just kind of shows that this movie, you know, may have had, you know, a wider impact if it had had a chance to actually come onto the scene a little bit better than it did. But I think that's the interesting part of the story is that it didn't do well in the box office, but then found its home, you know, in the hearts and minds of these kids that found it at some point and it never let go. And I think, you know, 30, 31 years down the road to be having that conversation is much more interesting than it is of just talking about a 30 year anniversary of a giant blockbuster hit, you know, back in the late 80s. And if we played our cards right, there was a through line where there's also a love story to cinema and movies as a whole. So if you didn't know the Monster Squad, hopefully you were still able to uh, feel the impact of loving a movie the first time when you sit down in a movie theater. For sure, for sure. And, I, and I'll, I'll, for the benefit of the audience, I'll repeat what, what, what I was able to do for me. And it's interesting because I've, I've, on, I've only seen Time Bandits for the first time this year on the big screen. And that's my film. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Arrow, Arrow did a release of it. And so they did a screening of the 2K or 4K restoration, whatever it was, at the Prince Charles, which is one of the venues that Fright Fresh uses. And sure. it was one of those amazing things where, I mean, I must have seen the film 50, 60 times. Um, and, and I did honestly manage to spot something I'd never seen before. And it was the open, it was the opening scene in the bedroom. There's a paper cutout of Napoleon on his bedroom wall, which in all the times I've ever watched it, I've never seen it. And then it's on the big screen, mm. and suddenly it's there staring me in the face. Yeah, which, very interesting. It it makes it, it's so fun to see movies, even that you know or don't know. They, they really are a better experience than watching on your laptop or on your on your on your laptop on your tablet. What I've been asking everyone this this um, this fright fest that have come on the previous year, previous years of podcasts I've been doing is um, to think about a first or an early fond memory of watching horror films. So I'll I'll let you pick what order, who wants to answer first. But if you want to give me uh, you know what, what it was, who you're with, and how you watched it, I distinctly remember uh, coming back from the mall one day. I was a mall rat when I was a kid, <laughs> and. Uh, my friends and I came through the front door and my mom was on the top of the staircase and she looked a little bothered. And I remember saying, mom, what are you doing? She's like, Oh, I was just upstairs watching a movie. That was really weird for me because we watched our movies in the den together. And I said, what movie? She goes, something called the shining. And I, w I said, that sounds awesome. Can we watch it? And she said, Oh no. <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, because I'm worried you'd think that your dad will kill you. And Whoa. ever since she said that, <laughs> I had to see The Shining. So it was a three-week operation for me and my friends to find that VHS tape, put it in the VCR, and watch it. And for the months to proceed, I was worried my dad was going to kill me. <laughs> but didn't right no he, he, did he didn't right I'm still okay, here. that's right okay good uh, that that is amazing <laughs> yeah i don't know if i can beat that um i think um I, I would say you know growing up in this industry and being around so much stuff you see a ton of movies but i don't think as a young young kid you get thrown in to see a bunch of horror or kind of slasher movies but the, you know they're all kind of swirling around in your memory bank yeah. but 
I think the one that pops out for me being this is Andre is probably the first time you ever I ever saw The Exorcist. Ooh. Okay, good. And that, where, where, where did you where did you where did you see it? Um, I believe I saw it at someone's house who probably had cable at the time because I didn't because I wasn't cool enough. Um, and I think it was late. And I think it was dark. And I think it was probably something that we probably shouldn't have been seeing. Right. You know, at that age, because I think it was very young. But, you know, seeing, you know, the scene after the movie ramps up and you get into the, you know, the meaty part of that, of that story. Yeah. Uh, just kind of blew, you know, kind of just blew your mind. And I think also what that movie does is it, if you're you're not familiar with, you know, kind of overall what religion is or overall what, you know, you know, segments and deeper cuts of what religion are. So it kind of really broadened your mind even more than just watching a scary movie. But I remember seeing Linda Blair being, you know, a young actor doing this big time performance and, uh, you know, with makeup effects and language and just crazy stuff. And so I think that impacted me probably the most. That's the one that sticks out. Did you know what she was doing with the crucifix? Oh, I don't, um, <laughs> bleep, bleep, bleep. Um, I don't, um, I don't think so. Um, I just know it was not right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Understatement of the year. Now, now it's, it's, it's worth, it's worth saying for the audience that don't know, Andre, you, you were, you were, um, you were in Monster Squad. Um, uh, I was. I did. I played. Uh, I played Sean Crenshaw, who is uh, affectionately known as the leader of the squad. And um, you know, it's just something that has, uh, you know, been this unique part of my life over obviously the last thirty years, but definitely the last ten or twelve when we've had this kind of crazy Monster Squad resurgence all over the place. And you know, kind of being associated with that has really kind of uh, you know lent uh, you know the experiences to you know, lead into something like making this documentary. I was going to say, so, so, so in, in that sense, what, cause I guess, I guess it's, it's, it, the, the documentary is like a 30th anniversary and a sort of unpacking of the fan phenomena that sort of gave it its resurgence to be even celebrate. The fact that it's even celebrating its 30th anniversary is arguably even 15 years ago would have seen, would have been odd, wouldn't it? To think that could happen. Yeah. But then, at, at sort of close to 20 years it gets the screening at the Alamo and something changes doesn't it in terms of um, people's people's understanding of the, f- the affection that lots of people have for the film but and, and and you grow to that point but but for the pair of you to come together to make a documentary how how did how did that come about so you go okay we're going to make a documentary about this what was what was your thinking at that point well I had always you know, over the since that first reunion screening in '06, and then the DVD comes out as a special edition in 2007, and it's just kind of going bonkers now. You know, the internet you know goes on fire, and fans everywhere coming out of the woodwork, and it's amazing. And what that lends to is lends to you know myself going to you know personal appearances and screenings, and you know joining other castmates to go to conventions and. You know, just being back together and, you know, taking pictures and signing autographs and doing big events and screenings. And for the first couple of years over time, you know, these fans keep coming up to you and explaining, you know, hey, this you don't understand that this is the the, the most important movie to me in my entire life. Or this is my favorite thing in the world or this means so much to me for, you know, X, Y, Z. And you hear that on repeat for a couple of years 
And look, honestly, at the time, we didn't think that kind of phenomenon, you know, the resurgence was going to last very long, maybe a year, maybe two. Mm-hmm. And it started in, and started in 2006 and it hasn't stopped. And it's just gotten stronger and deeper. And so over time, uh, you know, leading up to about a year and a half ago or two years ago, I thought those stories were so impactful to me and so unique to where these people were now adults with a generation of their own that they're showing this movie to. Yeah. That this is still so important to them uh, for for a deeper reason than just that it's, you know, fun genre fare or that it's a good horror movie or it's a good kids comedy movie. It was something deeper. And I thought those stories were extremely interesting. And I wanted to find a way, you know, I said to, in, in my own brain, knocked it around, I said, how can we make those stories a story? And that led to a serendipitous meeting one day running into Henry. And then it took, I'll let him take it from there. <laughs> uh, I ran in uh, to Andre outside of the studio that I work at Pilgrim Media Group, uh, mm. who was the production company with a uh, fitter piper that made the documentary. Um, and while, uh, Andre was being a star and then going to college and then experiencing all these, uh, relationships with his fans, I was a kid watching the monster squad being inspired by it to pick up a camcorder, make movies and go to film school. Uh, and those two separate storylines kind of met, met together outside in the parking lot of Pilgrim. And we started talking about projects that he had because I recognized him from the film. Uh, that led to us going to the bar, getting drinks, meeting a bunch, and talking about how we could do this as a uh, conscious and documentary, or we could dive into the threads and have it be a business thing. Uh, if people wanted to know how to make cult films, could be a how to make a cult film documentary. Yeah. Uh, the fans have this relationship with the movie, but so do the filmmakers like Fred and Shane. What happened to those people? How do they feel about it? And that's when we really started to sit down and find that through line of how one movie could change the life of an audience, a crew, and an industry, a creative industry. So, so with that in mind, a question I ask a lot of documentary filmmakers is, is, in terms of your perception going in, what was the biggest change in your view of the Monster Squad that you learned from the process of making the documentary? Um, I think that um, this is Andre. Uh, I think you know going in from the beginning, you know Henry and I worked you know really one really well together, but really hard at the very very beginning of Henry listening to what I thought you know the, the good ideas were and how can we capture those those kind of fundamental elements of what we wanted to cover. And then Henry was the one that actually made all that happen and then stitched it all together because we had an, a, just an astonishing amount of footage that we shot. And we were very fortunate enough over the last year to be one in the 30th anniversary year, which lent us being in attendance into a lot of events, events and conventions. And, you know, we did a 17 city Alamo draft house tour, which is a major part of the talk as a through line. And then get some great interviews that we never would have gotten if we didn't get on the road and travel, if we just waited for everybody to come to us or just had the accessibility to what we had around the corner. And, you know, the idea from the beginning was to not make this sort of uh, it wasn't that kind of fan doc with, you know, just a bunch of people, you know, gushing over their, you know, favorite, you know, kitschy movie. And it wasn't about 
it definitely wasn't about the cast. It wasn't a, a making of the Monster Squad movie. And it wasn't about the cast. And it wasn't about me. And, you know, I kind of, that was one of the things that Henry and I, um, you know, discussed more than more than once um, is that, you know, this is definitely not about me and it's not about the cast. It's about the fans and how can we turn the spotlight around on them to understand that they are the reason for this dynamic of why this movie's still around for 30 years. Mm. So went through that process and just kind of slugged through it. But, you know, what you do is you evolve when you make something like that. And we did so much in such a compressed amount of time that I don't know if your perception changes, but your, you know, your, your, your view broadens definitely. And you learn things on a constant basis. And mm. I think my answer to your question of, you know, what did I learn personally from making this documentary yeah. is that, you know, this loyal fan base is one even deeper and stronger than I thought it was. And that, you know, it it was an amazing to see, even on a wider scale, the impact that this film and this story and these characters had on human beings, which is crazy. And it's amazing. And then also, I think that we were trying to be, you know, as a filmmaker of this thing that I wanted to do, I wanted to find out like I said, what these people's stories were and how it impacted them and why they're a part of this fabric of this film. And then I realized that I was also a part of the fabric of this film, uh, you know, almost sort of in like a Heisenberg principle thing. Like, you know, the more you know about something, the more, more you change it. Or, you know, when you know something else about it, you know, it, it fundamentally changes your other position on it. And I realized at the very end when I think I saw it maybe for the second time with an audience that I'm wrapped up in the story as well, as much as I tried to keep myself out of the documentary as much as mm. possible uh, or the perception of it, that it was like, hey, look at this movie I made about myself. Uh, but it was it was also more that I realized. I was impacted not only by this movie because I'm in it, but it was part of my life for now 30 years. And I've been a major part in celebrating it with all these fans as well. So I'm just as woven into the fabric of this 30 year dynamic as anybody else. I think it's important to mention that it's a testament on the community inside the genre industry. We could not have made this movie if it wasn't from all the amazing people from festivals to filmmakers, uh, to the fans. And, um, one thing that horror doesn't get enough props is if you're part of that family, everyone inside the community is going to treat you like a family member. So we had people that didn't, um, no one charged us for an interview. We had locations just because everybody wanted to talk about the film. Um, we had venues. Everything was coming together because people were so excited to sit down and talk about the Monster Squad. And uh, I think that's very important to note that while we're watching this movie about the monster squad, we're also watching a movie about a dedicated family on both sides of the camera. It's still fresh in the mind, me watching the film and, and it hadn't crossed my mind until you started to say it. And then like, as, as you're saying it, I'm beginning to compute what watching the movie. And I'm thinking, yeah, it would have been very easy for you, Andre to so, sort of go, here's this film, this cool film that I was in. Let's talk about me being in a cool film, but it's a long way from that. And it, it's almost like, I mean, not, not to, to um, embarrass or anything. It's almost like you've you've removed yourself from the equation and sort of offered only the time capsule, which is you as the kid who was in it, 
and you're just an observer like everybody else, if that makes sense. I, I, that was definitely a, a point of emphasis at the very beginning that I didn't want it to be that. Because, um, like you said, it could be very – that would be the very easy thing to do and, um, and, and a very uh, kind of self-serving thing to do. But, uh, no, Henry and I went back and forth a lot of times on that. And, um, I, you know, there was things where I versions and like, I'm in that part, take me out, I'm in that too much, get me out, get me out. And then Henry had to explain that I was part of this too and um, that there, there are certain spots that you definitely need to be in. <laughs> now, well, one thing that, because of the emphasis on fans, it, it, it's hard when you finish watching the movie. Uh, like in one sense, like I said at the beginning, I feel like I missed out on something special. And the reason I feel like I missed out on something special that is that we currently live in an age where Star Wars actors are being chased off social media um, and yet, all the way through Wolfman's Got Nad, all you show, and I don't mean that you do it in a biased way, or, and I mean, I mean, the observation I can take from the film is that, that what you're showing is actually the real positive and unifying qualities of fan culture. The thing that I, I mean, it's the thing that I grew up with, and I understand. I don't understand what's yeah. currently the toxic fan culture that's going on at the moment, where everyone's fighting over who owns what argument in what film in what franchise and I just thought it was just, just a wonderful thing to experience watching your film is to just see you know Shane Black at one end you know and Guy in his, gar in his garage at another talking <laughs> with the same love about, about one movie the unified uh, the united thread about the fans in the movie that we started noticing very early on was most people identified with themselves as an outsider Mm. Uh, and the monster squad is a movie about a group of friends. And a lot of these people were looking to be part of a group of friends. So I think what makes this such a celebration is how inclusive the fandom is around the monster squad. They are never going to kick someone out unless they're being hateful or mean. And if that's not happening, then all they want to do is come together and celebrate the Monster Squad. And that was pretty amazing to watch because now this group of outsiders that wanted to be in the squad themselves or in a club themselves and go into a treehouse and talk about their favorite kind of horror movies, they can. And it's all because of the centerpiece of Fred Decker's film. And I think I think the other thing about it being Fred Decker is is interesting as a subject in the film as well because obviously he he he's probably um the the most i guess obtuse perspective on the film compared to most of the people talking about it because because i guess there's a level of ownership that he feels or, or certainly expresses about having made the film and then that sort of 19 year lag between it's it's being ready to watch and then it's its resurgence as as a popular film, um, and I felt like that was a kind of that was kind of touching, and and and, it, and I felt you got a lot out of him that he could have he could have been easily closed up about. I thought because obviously it's a long time for him, and it's you know, it, it, as he says himself, he put his heart and soul into making it, and then it took nineteen years for people to kind of catch up with that in in a, in, a, in a wider sense. How, how, how did you how did you handle that as as um, as part of the conversation, because I, I get, I felt like he was a very different perspective from most, from everybody else you spoke to. No, he is, and you're you're, you're certainly right, and it, and it comes across uh, as as good as it could. Um, you know, knowing Fred for as long as I have, and then especially in this last ten or twelve years of this resurgence dynamic, 
Um, I understand and I've known about his kind of conflicted relationship with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and I think on his side, he has a relationship with two different two different things. He has a relationship with, you know, creating and, and, and writing with Shane this movie and making this movie. And then there's a second half of it of this movie coming out and bombing. Mm. And then that personal reaction. And he really is sort of the, I don't want to say the anti-interview in this documentary at all, but he no. is certainly, um, you know, provides a, 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 a different perspective of most of the interviews because he has the most personal relationship with this movie Mm. as a story and as a product. And he, he's the one that he's more affected by it than, than anybody, including myself who was in it, uh, including any fan that can possibly say they were affected by this. He has the most personal and, you know, dual relationship with it. And it was certainly important for us to obviously have Fred in this documentary and me knowing those conflicted kind of, you know, emotions with, that over the years, it was important that I, you know, we kind of wanted to get that, but that's also hard to force that. And it took a while for, you know, for it to kind of, you know, work out and settle down and, and for Fred to sit down and, you know, kind of open up and, you know, talk about it. And he got comfortable with, you know, what we were doing with the film because he saw some, you know, kind of previous footage and he saw a 30 minute cut that we had done and said, OK, let's sit down and, and do this. And, you know, getting that was the win right there. But then, you know, we went to his house and, you know, he was comfortable on his couch and we just talked almost for the entire afternoon and let him kind of explain in a way that he's explained before in front of a crowd. But also, this is probably the best kind of conversation I've seen that Fred has had about his feelings on this movie. And it was very interesting. And I think the timing was even better because it during a year that he has now kind of, you know, a lot of things have almost full circle. And now he's working on numerous projects with Shane Black again, and they were just finishing up uh, the predator uh, mm-hmm. while he's giving this interview and where they haven't, they haven't even gone into production on the predator. I don't think, um, or had they, they, they had finished writing it and they were in production on it. Yeah. And so it was, you know, there was a, you know, kind of a, a full circle thing going on, with those conflicted emotions of how something like Monster Squad could now lead to Fred and Shane working again together 30 years later on a giant studio picture. Mm. There was a there was this version of a documentary without Fred Decker in it for a majority of the time that we were making the documentary because we couldn't lock down an interview. Uh, and that was terrifying to me because I can't imagine the documentary without a Fred Decker interview. Uh, and we were in communication with him throughout the entire year, and he did good at getting back to us. But he was just unsure if he wanted to sit down and talk about his feelings on the Monster Squad and also what the product was going to look like. Um, when we finally did get the interview, he invited us over, and we stayed there for hours. Uh, so while you're watching the interview, you'll notice that he starts – at the beginning, talking about the Monster Squad and everything he loves about it in broad daylight. Mm. We had lights there, but there was also a window or sun shining in from the background. By the end of it, when he was getting most personal and most open, it went to full night. Mm. And the background was a little bit darker. And I think that's a awesome symbol of Fred's interview and his opinions on the film. 
he notes it as uh, his favorite movie and the best movie that he worked on, but he's frustrated with the fact that it wasn't celebrated when it first came out. I look at it as a filmmaker from behind the scenes as how amazing is it that you made a movie that still stands the test of time and people love 30 years later when most people don't remember movies that come out in 1987. Mm. No, no, totally. No, and, 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 you know, different scales of of sort of um, not not really reaching a popular audience. But I suppose earlier in the 80s you had, I mean, The Thing, nobody wanted The Thing after they had, because we'd had E.T. And, and, you know, Blade Runner wasn't exactly received by everybody. Uh, Absolutely. You know, and, and, and obviously time was kinder to those films too in the way that they grew in popularity thanks to things like HBO presentation and and, and VHS rentals um, so, some sometimes you make something that's so ahead of time that the audience needs to catch up to it because it's the first of its kind and people don't know how to perceive it the thing came out the same was it the same week or the same two weeks as ET mm. <laughs> one yeah totally uh, yeah that's a hard pill to swallow when you're watching another movie about a friendly alien. <laughs> <laughs> now, as well as that, that central sort of conflict with one of the main sort of voices connected to the film, the, the the film is also tinged with with a chapter of genuine sadness, isn't it? As well as uh, as well as the, the 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 wonderful story of a film that was lost and then found. Um, Absolutely. And that's and that's uh, obviously uh, the passing of uh, of Brent Challen, who, who played Horace, who. Wolfman got nards is is it delivers the line, um, and it and it and it it it, it fits it, it fits with what you're doing with the film because it it, it, it without it doesn't, it doesn't exploit it at all, does it? It's it's part it's part of the film's life, isn't it? That that sadly that that horror, that, that tragedy. Uh, you know, it kind of is because in and what I kind of wanted to make sure that we had a little bit of something in there about Brent uh, because. He is not only a part of the squad, he's a big part of this movie. He is probably everybody's, it's probably split uh, pretty evenly between everybody's favorite character is either Horace or Rudy. Mm. And it's so unfortunate that, you know, 20 years and 25 and 30 years later when we're doing these appearances that Brent is not able to be here because he's not around anymore. And these fans, you know, they learn about that. And instead of what's really unique is instead of making that making them bitter about that or they don't get to meet their favorite character, I think it endears them to the movie even more because we have kind of brought them those fans into the fold and, you know, they're members of the squad and they feel like they lost one of their own. Mm. And, you know, that kind of carries through. And I don't think we could have made a documentary about the impact that this movie had on fans or made a movie about the impact that movies have on a fan base and not talk about the Brent, you know, uh, situation, um, because that's a major part of it. And I don't think it would be the same if he was around. I wish he was around because I think him enjoying this would be amazing. And I think the fans enjoying him would be so dynamic, but it's a major part of this ongoing story. And I think it was super important to have it in there uh, just enough. You know, yes, it's an emotional pull in the movie because it's an emotional subject, but um, I think it's important because it's also part of this overall, you know, timeline. 
I want to step into controversial waters and dare I compare Monster Squad to the Goonies. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> you've, met, you've mentioned it. I, do, I wasn't going to. Carry on. <laughs> and and uh, we'll talk about how chubby kids were portrayed in the 80s during that Amblin era. Yeah. Um, I really connected with Horace because, breaking news, I was a chubby kid. Uh and um, there were two movies that were talked about a lot. It was Goonies and it was The Monster Squad. Okay. The reason why I connected with Horace is because in The Goonies, Chunk told a lot of jokes. He kind of whined and complained a lot. Uh, but he was really there to be a punchline the entire time until he befriended Sloth. Hmm. Uh, Horace was picked on in the beginning and throughout the duration of the movie – found his independence, grabbed a shotgun, and started blowing monsters away. One of those is much more empowering than the others. And so the Monster Squad, the way Shane and Fred wrote that, gave me a character that I could identify with and also aspire to be. Uh, When we were making the documentary, I looked at a lot of interviews, uh, and Andre shared a bunch of links with uh, people that talked about the making of before. And we looked at things where people were talking about uh, Horace and Brent Chalem, and everybody was just kind of saying the same thing about how sweet he was. And I think that Andre and I decided that we should give him the dedication he deserves and hadn't received yet. Mm. So that's a, that's a very special thing to me in Wolfman's Got Hearts. And 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 you talk your um, your academic guy. I forgot his name now. Who who does the screenings to his film study students? Mike uh, Dillon. Mike Dillon. Who um, he he obviously raised the question about what what is seen as being correct, you know, politically correct then and now. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it, that that what the idea of uh, poking fun at the chubby kid would be seen as wrong now, yeah. whereas what you've just described is. All right, the, the poke in the front of the kid is not good, but the arc the character goes on um, takes that sense. I guess the reality of what you were what you're recognizing in, in Horace's experience early on, and then the story develops. Then goes, look, you can you can grow as a person. Is the is the, I guess the positive side if there is one, or do you think that the the sort of the the picked upon element is something that we, 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 we should be glad to lose. I think there's a lot of truth in what you said. The only part I disagree in is I think that they should always show the chubby kid getting picked on at first because that's real life. Mm. And I think the way the kids were uh, talking in uh, the Monster Squad is how kids do talk when parents aren't around. Maybe mm. the vernacular has changed. Uh, but you know, they're learning things and they're learning how to insult each other and put people down. And that becomes part of the dialogue as you're a young person becoming an adult and you say politically incorrect things. Mm. I think Shane and Fred did a good job capturing how the youth of the eighties or a little before talked at that time. I think it wouldn't be real if the chubby kid didn't get picked on. I, cause I, experience that and i'm sure kids experience that now what's real is how you overcome that and how you uh put that into your psyche as you become a man the other thing that that, that people watching this film might get is is for filmmakers is and and, and I, I particularly found it fascinating the the behind the scenes shots where where fred red deck is directing the movie 
and it's um, it's scenes with um, with Ashley Bank as as young Phoebe, um, and and just watching how how he directs children in in a horror situation. I thought it was a fascinating, you know, little it's little snippets that you put you dropped into the ongoing narrative as to why the film was special to then show us something really happening. Actually, it was actually quite a quite a brilliant instructional piece on directing kids in in horror movies. I thought the most amazing director move in that throwback sequence and in, in that behind the scenes footage is he's directing a child while there's giant wind machines and crew running around and just so many distracting elements. And what he does is gently grabs her hand. So then she dials into his words and his eyes. She's paying attention to him the entire time. And I was just like, mind blown. Fred knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And it's, you know, speaking from uh, many, many years of experience of being a, a younger actor. And I started acting the same age that Ashley was when she did Monster Squad. So I started yeah. when I was five, uh, did Monster Squad when I was 13, 14. Um, but yet, you know, being, being a kid on a set is, is a completely, um, you know, un, <laughs> unnormal, unnatural thing for a normal kid. Uh, but yet, and you have to be a professional and you're an actor and you're there to do a job. And, um, it's, it's very high pressure and, uh, it's very, um, uh, you know, time, time sensitive and, you know, crews and directors and producers, you know, that's always the thing, you know, they said, don't ever work with kids or animals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is a reason because it's, it's really hard to, to do. I think one of the great things from the very, very, very early on with making this movie was Fred made sure that he connected with us as a group of kids and as kids on an individual level for what he wanted to come across uh, and he was very cognizant about relating to us as a kid himself because he wasn't that much older than us. I mean, he was, you know, probably 10 years older than or 12 years older than Ryan was, you know, because he was 14, 15 when we made this movie. And, you know, he was just a big kid himself and he knew how to connect to get what you want out of kids on a movie set. A lot of directors don't do that very well. And, you know, they don't understand that as a kid on a movie set, like Henry said, there's so much distraction. There's so many weird things going on that you've never seen before in your life. And your attention span is bad anyway, because you're a kid. <laughs> and, you know, it's, some things can be fascinating and your focus leaves and your attention, you know, to detail, you know, just disappears. But Fred focused on and made sure every, you know, he checked in all constantly as a group and as individuals. Uh, and a lot of directors don't do that. And I I give examples uh, between, you know, Fred working with kids and other young directors working with kids. And you can't sit there with a kid and try to direct a young, you know, eight, you know, seven, eight, nine year old and use big words or assume that he understands what you're saying the first time you say it. Uh, you've got to come. You've got to get to his level. You've got to communicate on 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 his or her level. And kids are really mimics. Right. And that's what they're going to do is they want to they kind of want to do a good job and impress you. And so they will mimic a lot of things. And if they don't understand what's going on, they're unable to mimic it. And then if they can't mimic it, they can't bring their own little thing to whatever they're kind of trying to recreate that you've explained to them and you've lost them. Mm. And it happens a lot with kids. And you can see that. I see it a lot because I know exactly probably what happened on the set that day when I watched something with kids. But uh, I think Fred did a really – amazing job of, of making sure he did that on a constant basis 
And then he turned around and had to, you know, manage a giant crew with a bunch of wind machines and all this other stuff. But when he turned around and focused on you, it was about you and, and, and this group. And Fred was a kid himself, too. He was only, what, 12 years older than you? At yeah, the time? Like, yeah, like 25, something, 24, 25 years old when he made this movie. So he's not that far removed, which I think was one of the, you know, great things about it is he still had that connection. Was he your favorite director to work with? I think he's, I think because of all of those factors, he's definitely um, my, probably, if not my favorite director I've ever worked with, if not tied, you know, just with other things that people brought in. But it was certainly, you know, a testament to one, his enthusiasm and two, uh, his creativity of how to go about it. One last question for you guys. Um, given what knowledge you had of the film and, and the experience of, of having done, you know, been been going to screenings and doing Q and A's, but then setting about making setting about making a movie begins to reveal things in a different way, and obviously you're paying closer attention to what you're finding out as you talk to people. So, for for both of you, what was your favourite discovery about the monster the monster squad that you that that you didn't know before making the film? Uh, I didn't know when we were starting that there was going to be a movie being made at the same time. Uh, I didn't know that that movie was going to be directed by Shane Black and that Fred Decker was going to be partnering with him again. I didn't know that Tom Woodruff, who was Gilman and created uh, Frankenstein for the Monster Squad, was going to be designing the creature effects for that film. <laughs> and I didn't know, as we were telling this 30th, year story that it was going to be a big 360 in our production that the team that created the monster squad came back together to create the predator it's like it chills it it's like it's just, it's just bananas sliding doors isn't it? it it is and that's what i think as the as this kind of story of the documentary evolved as we compiled all of these stories and interviews and experiences was that this movie uh, the Monster Squad really is either a catalyst. Uh, it's almost an, an, an alpha and an omega in, in some sense that it's really a full circle story to a lot of different people that are singular and um, also tied together only because of the Monster Squad. And they're doing amazing things now. And that never would have happened if Monster Squad wasn't made. And I think um, Henry's answer to your question is awesome because that's certainly true. Uh, as you know, the, the year we're making this documentary is the year the Predators getting made, and it's just fascinating to step back and see that that actually happen. I think my answer to your question is probably a little bit. I'll go a little bit more personal mm -hmm. in that I just spent you know kind of an entire year making sure this movie wasn't about you know wasn't about me, uh, but then I realized I think it was our second or third screening at a festival. Um, when I was asked about that very thing, um, that why wasn't, you know, we hear all these stories, like everybody's story is told of how this movie impacted their life. And he asked me why he didn't see me in that interview chair with that story. Right. And I realized that there was something that we focused on not doing the whole time. And I was kind of caught off guard with the question, but then I realized almost in an instant that what I learned over the, the period of time 
you know, developing this documentary, shooting this documentary and finishing this documentary um, with, with Henry and, and the team was that my story is the documentary. That's my experience. And I think my sitting down in an interview chair telling my story is much more dynamic by watching what I think my story is, because look how full, look how full circle that came for me mm. is I ended up making a movie about the experiences that this movie has had with people and we finished it and we made it and we get to watch it now. And so I, I kind of relish in the fact that my story maybe is the documentary. So yeah, yeah. So you're saying your, your story is implicit in, in everything that's on screen. Yeah. Or even it's either implicit or it's either kind of hidden or it's this overall type of thing. I don't know which one it is. No, no, I get what you're uh, saying. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, before the podcast started, you mentioned meta. I don't think there's many things more meta than in 1987, Andre was a star in front of the camera. 30 years later, now 31 years later, we're touring a documentary where he was behind the camera and he went from actor to director, producer. Um, when I was a kid, I discovered the Monster Squad and all I wanted to do was be part of that club. Hmm. I grew up and I got to make movies with the Monster Squad. Fantastic. I think that's as good a place to me to end a podcast as, as I can think of. So thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Well, thanks for having us on the Britflix podcast. <laughs> thank you very much. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly... There's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the